Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to a realm where reality intertwines with the inexplicable, where the boundaries of reason dissolve into the shadows of uncertainty. Welcome to the political twilight zone. I am your guide to this enigmatic labyrinth, where politics and power take on life of their own. In this dimension, the threads of truth weave a tapestry of intrigue, challenging our perception of the world we thought we knew. In this world, nothing is as it seems, and the truth lies buried beneath layers of deceit. Prepare to venture where reason meets the unexplained, and where the unexplained might just be. Hi, everybody. Welcome back this weekend to our ever-evolving democracy, or republic, as I like to think of it. Isn't that what you call it now, when things keep changing and you can't figure out why? It's just evolving. Just evolving. Sort of like some of our politicians' positions on things, say, Barack Obama's positions on two or three things, like gay marriage and stuff like that. You know, he's evolved, I guess. Uh, it's sort of like, you know... Growing an extra finger or maybe having six toes. I don't know. But, uh, yes, this evolving thing. Welcome back. We appreciate it. Uh, another busy week, I have to say. Uh, not a good week when it's busy, but uh, nevertheless, lots to talk about. I wanted to talk about this week. Oh, by the way, I'm Rick Wagner. I'm right here on KNZZ and KGLN. We're at 1192.7. Oh, that 980 and 101.3. And then, of course, we're on the Internet uh, and... Uh, the uh, podcasting after this sh- that we keep after the show and the ships at sea, as all of you know, we uh, we value our our nautical friends out there listening in. But here's the thing I wanted to talk about: the rule of law. Doesn't that sound great? The rule of law. That sounds very. It's a very high-minded concept, isn't it? It sort of should be floating above the Acropolis, perhaps. And our friends on the on the left love to use it now. I hear this, well, the rule of law, that and the no one's above the law. Well, of course, that's ridiculous because we see people that apparently are above the law all the time. And a lot of them are Democrats. So, you know, I mean, that's there's a little bit of hypocrisy there. But really, is hypocrisy important in politics? Let's be honest. If lightning struck people that were, you know, doggedly hypocritical, uh, there would be a constant electrical storm over Washington, D.C. There'd be no one in the streets, certainly nobody in the Capitol building. And uh, the place would just, uh, you know, look like a light bulb going off every two or three seconds. So obviously that uh, that's not what they mean. And I don't really like it very well either. Because the rule of law seems to imply that you have to obey all the laws. And I, I think you should obey the laws. But if they're not good laws, you ought to be able to change them. Because there's lots of places that the rule of law, not so hot, right? For instance... There were lots of laws in the Soviet Union. Man, all kinds of laws. There were lots of laws in uh, the Third Reich. There are lots of laws uh, in fascist Italy. There were lots of laws in uh, fascist Spain, which we're going to talk about here in a little bit, by the way. And uh, were all those good laws? Would you be proud of the rule of law that some of those had imposed? Of course not. It's because the rule of law implies something, but it doesn't necessarily define what it is. So if you say the rule of law, people interpret that differently, don't they? Uh, what they say, the rule of law, really means the rule of law we agree with. And that just that's natural. People just, when they hear sort of a, an amorphous phrase like that, particularly if it's kind of high-sounding, they sort of just fill in the blanks. But here's the thing. Right now, we don't seem to be even living in a place where the law is even all that followed, do we? And if I had to ask for something about the law, 
rather than the rule of law, I would ask for an equal application of the law. This does not seem to come up very much. You don't see Nancy Pelosi out there talking about the equal application of the law. It's just, you know, no one's above the law and the rule of law. What does that mean? Really? There are bad laws all over the place. There are terrible laws in history from time to time. So, does that really mean anything? No. It's equal application of the law. And here's the thing about how equal, equal application of the law keeps bad laws from being on the books, at least some of them. That's because, in many cases, not all, I can think of a couple off the top of my head, but in many cases, if people that are making the laws are actually subject to them, they don't make them. They don't make the bad ones, or as many of them, do they? It's when you no longer have equal application of them that a lot more bad and injurious laws become effective. Remember that... uh the old quote, the more numerous the laws, the more corrupt the state. Every day, our various legislatures at state and federal level pump out volumes of law. Well, that's not every day. Every session. Volumes get pumped out more and more. Now, it's a little like uh, Gulliver's Travels, and I've used this analogy before, uh, to the Lilliputes, the Lilliputian. That's the little folks in the Gulliver's Travels, Right. And when Gulliver wakes up, they're tiny little people, but uh, he was he got washed up on the shore, and he's being tied down with all these little tiny ropes across him that these smaller people have placed on him. Now, any one of them would not be much to Gulliver because he's so much bigger than them. But why he wasn't paying attention when he was recovering from being at sea and getting washed up on the beach, he was ensnared in these many, many little ropes. So that each one was not all that bad. But together, they trapped him. It's a little bit like a country. Every law you put on the books, even good ones, have to be examined because they somehow, in whatever way you want to look at it, constrain some freedom. So be very careful about passing laws. But we have a very cavalier idea about that. Every uh, legislator in state, federal your city council, no matter what it is, thinks their idea, the idea that they should have, is to go there and pass more laws. Ideas that they have that float in their little heads, many of them uh, distributed by the butterfly effect of their uh, following of national figures. You know, hey, if it's something something they did in Illinois, and uh, that, he's a big, important guy, we should do that here. I mean, that's the kind of logic you get. But it's seldom applied equally to everybody. And obviously all these little laws, even if they are applied equally, have to be guarded very carefully from becoming too burdensome. We're there now, by the way. But equal application of the law is so important and because if it's not applied equally, that's not really the law, is it? It's simply a it's it's simply a manifestation of will of desire on the part of people who have power. They take what they want to have happen and they manifest it in the law for everyone else because they hold the power. So when the law is not applied equally, 
And as we said, there are much fewer bad laws, there's still a few, when everybody's subjected to them. It's not applied equally. It's so much easier for people who hold the reins of power to subject people to their will, their ideas, their desires, their vision. And there's little you can do about it. Because they're doing it for your own good. Yes. We hear that, too. For, oh, yes, for the common good. Really? The common good. How does that affect you? We all know Congress in the United States exempts themselves from many of their laws. Uh, you know, some of their laws having to do with employment and things like that. It's too burdensome on them. Their work is far too important. It's sort of like John Kerry's need to fly all over the world in his jet because he has to tell people to stop flying all over the world in the jet. And how could he do that in any kind of time frame if he wasn't allowed to fly all over the place? I mean, that's literally the logic that he comes up with, which at its root is simply, I'm too important to have to obey that. That's, you know, but for me, the deluge, right? And that's the self-important thing. And that's why you don't have the application of the law. But always remember that the Constitution guarantees us that kind of stuff. The 14th Amendment, you know, it was passed after the Civil War and was originally uh, intended to protect the slaves, guarantees that no state shall deny any person uh, equal protection of the laws. And the Fifth Amendment says that no person shall be deprived of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. All of these have been interpreted to mean an equal application of the law. And I don't mean interpreted this year or this, I mean, from the beginning. We've struggled with that, sure. But that's what that means. And it's not just a legal concept. It is a societal and cultural concept that we have to adhere to. Otherwise, fairness is just gone. Right back. Hey, everybody. Thanks for sticking with us here. Still required. You're getting it right here. You're a political Viking out there trying to disrupt as much as possible so that we can get a word in edgewise. huh? <laughs> so I do appreciate your listenership, by the way. I always like to point that out because... Uh, I'm very privileged to be able to talk to all of you out there, and uh, it makes my week every time I'm able to do it. So thank you for allowing me to uh, to be there with you. But I, I wanted to be a little more clear about what I was talking about the last segment about this rule of law thing and the equal application of the law. It's so easy to have this jingoism, I think they call it, you know, it's probably not exactly what that is, where you just hear the same phrase over and over again and... Um, you know, we hear so much this with the Trump stuff. Oh, no one's above the law. Well, of course, you know, that's ridiculous. We see, you know, Democrats, particularly right now, that are apparently uh, not above the law. They're just above investigation. <laughs> the law doesn't even get to them. So I guess maybe that's true. I don't know. Uh, but, yeah, so we see what this weaponization, as they're liking to call it, on the Republican side, you know, the committee on the weaponization of these guys. Here's Here's the thing about that is the law as it's applied in the criminal sense, isn't it of itself a weapon? Isn't it? I mean, it doesn't have to be weaponized. It is a weapon against crime. It's be used against crime. It's what you deploy to prevent crime. Deploy the law and the enforcement of the law. So you don't have to weaponize anything. It's not how you change it. It's how you use it. So once again, we get into the application of it. There's no weaponization going on here. The law, criminal side especially, is in of itself a weapon against crime. It's just who decides what crime is. And that's part of the problem. The biggest part of the problem. 
apparently crime is, for the most part, much more heinous if uh, found to be in the hands of someone who's a Republican or a conservative or looks like they might win an election and are not a Democrat. That's what it looks like. Do I think it's that bad? Not quite. But it's pretty bad. I mean, it's... They're not even pretending anymore, my friends. <laughs> they're not even pretending. And it doesn't seem to bother them. It doesn't seem to bother lots of people. And it should. Because, as we like to say, in sort of attenuated form, uh, if nobody complains when they come for somebody you don't like and are being unfair, who's going to complain when they come for you? That's one of the reasons we have to sustain things that maybe we find odious, right? Free speech, for instance, is not in place as a bulwark in the Constitution for speech that you like or speech that you agree with or that someone else doesn't like or doesn't agree with. The purpose of it, so speech can be heard and people can engage in debate, right? And if you don't have that debate, then the whole idea of the social contract falls apart. Remember, the social contract is what we're all under here, our, the kind of government we have. The government we have is supposed to protect our natural rights. And in America, I wrote something on this on the website, government is a voluntary association, right, of individuals, citizens in this situation, who give up some of their personal freedoms, the right to solve problems on their own, and they give them up to the government that they create in exchange for order and protection from crime and the behavior of others that is injurious to them. If you if you don't understand that, there's a real problem. If you think that it's coming from someplace else, your high-mindedness, your superiority over your fellow people, if, it's, if you think it's coming from that, if you think the ability to control your government comes from that kind of thing, you're just one step away from the divine right of kings anyway. I mean, you think you're just special. You know, my mama thinks I'm special, so I must be able to run everything. I don't need to have the consent of the governed. I'm special. There's really not too many steps away from that <laughs> to get to the Hillary Clintons and people like that. Barack Obama's, Joe Biden, if he could possibly think about it, which I think is, he probably never could think that clearly, and he certainly isn't now. Without the ability to discuss these things in the free speech arena, we aren't able to clarify people's positions we're not able to hold the government responsible. We're not able to get the word out about things we think or we've discovered for people to tell us that, you know, they agree or that they disagree. And so the whole purpose of the government that we have is to give you as much personal freedom as possible so long that it doesn't unreasonably infringe on the freedom of others. Remember, and I've said this before, but not for a while. Barack Obama was sort of right. Remember when he was running the first time, when he said that, well, the Constitution is made up of negative liberties. Hmm. It's a cute phrase, but it doesn't seem to have a meaning when you start trying to pull it apart. What he, what he means is partly true. It is a negative in one sense. The Constitution mainly says no to government. So I suppose that's a negative. Negative liberties, no. No, that's he's he's parsing some term. That's not correct. It is the fence that keeps government out of certain places. Yes. It 
protects as much as possible your right to be left alone. Right not to have people search your house without going through some process. The right to have people not tell you to shut up just because they don't like what you have to say. You're also your right, like we've been talking about, to be treated equally under the law. That some neighbor that uh, is more on the political spectrum, like the people enforcing the law, isn't treated differently than you. All of these things are protected by the Constitution. The Constitution does not grant you rights. The Constitution protects the rights that you have as a natural person and citizen and a human being. And it attempts to fence out government from these areas. The Constitution doesn't give you the right to do things. It prevents the government from stopping you from doing things. So I don't like people to say, well, the Constitution gives me the right. No, you have that right. The Constitution, if it discusses it, usually is trying to rein in or create some sort of process before government could interfere with that right. It's not as subtle a thing as it seems. When you consider the Constitution as written to prevent things from happening that the framers knew were problems, they will let people live as freely as possible, not dictate how they lived, just keep government out of it as much as possible so that the wheels didn't come off when the inevitable people who can't live within any boundaries of civilized society act up. So the government can still get at those, but they have to go through some processes and all of those have to be with the consent of the governed. So there you go. Okay, let's talk about, oh, geez, i got a bunch of things to talk about here. I'm going to wait save this thing here that I'm thinking about for later. Uh, I wanted to say how difficult it is now to get good information that's got a fresh perspective on it. I really think about that when I'm trying to prepare for the show. Uh, trying to think about it so I'm just not echoing what everybody else says. I mean, at some point, you have to, because there are people out there that are very bright, smarter than me, that say things that are true, and you have to, in some, in some way, repeat them because they're true and they are truisms. So they're, you know, they're everywhere. You have to keep pointing them out to remind people who would like to ignore them. So finding voices that are creative and see things from a different perspective that can make you think and help you expand your own ideas, myself included, it's pretty hard to do. And I think that's one of the reasons that Fox News is having so much trouble after Tucker Carlson. It's because for the most part, they've now removed everybody that has a whole lot in the way of thoughtful discourse from some of their hosting. Not that people are bad. I It's like Laura Ingram. Sean Hannity's got them things to say, but sometimes he says them over and over and over again. Uh, and, you know, I, I enjoy Gutfeld. He has, you know, he's one of these guys, he fires out 20 things and seven or eight of them hit and the rest don't, but it's okay because it's, you know, it's rapid fire and you can enjoy it. It's different. But apparently since they've lost uh, Tucker, their ratings have been bad. And, you know, July 18th, what was that, Tuesday? Yeah. They uh, brought on their new lineup, which is the old lineup, just rearranged. It's sort of like uh, taking the checkers and moving them around to different spots on the board. Still the same checkers. And they decided to put Jesse Waters in the time slot, move him up from what Tucker had. Well, I think I've been 
clear about my feelings on Jesse Waters. I, I'm not a fan. <laughs> I don't disagree with most of the things he says. I actually agree with most things he said. I, I just, he's, uh, you know, he's just too smug for me. <laughs> it sounds terrible when I say it out loud. And so I watch it a little bit, but I, you know, Tucker, I never used to miss if I had an opportunity. Laura Ingram, fine. You know, I had her on our radio station when we had a radio st- talk radio station years ago. I think we were like the second or third station to put her on and uh, lucky to get her. And so I still like her. But where's where's the intuition? Where's the different perspective? Where's the, the looking at it and seeing it a little differently and talking about it? Or bringing in something different into it. That's what Tucker did. You don't have to agree with it. These people are hard to find. That's why when I see uh, Douglas Murray or, oh, Victor Davis Hanson, uh, two or three, uh, those two always jump out at me, uh, you know, pop up as a guest. I always listen to it because the, and then when it goes away, you realize, boy, I really like okay, that. Okay, folks, thanks for sticking around. Rick Wagner here still getting it right out here is the political Viking uh, disrupting as much as possible. Yes, I am. And I was thinking... While we were on the uh, sort of the free speech discussion, how many of you got to see some or excerpts probably from uh, Robert Kennedy Jr.'s uh, little soiree in front of the uh, House Committee on Censorship? <laughs> I'm sorry to laugh. There's a, there's a bizarre irony to watch a hearing on censorship, government censorship, and watch every Democrat on the panel try and shut down the hearing and censor what RFK Jr. is saying. If it weren't so frightening in your own country, it would be satire. But, of course, we live in a time where satire is practically dead because it's hard to be more absurd than what's actually going on. But if you get a chance to take a look at that, I mean, you don't have to watch much of it. Debbie Wasserman Schultz trying to make the hearing on censorship make it not open to the public. I wasn't able to do that. I often think of what uh, Rush used to refer to her as uh, Debbie Blabberman, Blabbermouth Schultz, remember? And she got into it with uh, just some nasty stuff. I mean, they they have been nasty to pretty much all the witnesses here. I mean, and, you know, we have that on the right, too. I mean, we see the argument between uh, Rand Paul and Fauci, although I don't think it's particularly nasty. I think he's just trying to pry the truth out. And a few other things like that occasionally devolves into it. But these hearings on the weaponization of the state and censorship and so forth have just been nasty. Every witness they've got in there, the three Republicans have called, since they're at least chairing the committees, has just been demeaned and insulted the entire time. Hakeem Jeffries, the uh, tremendous lover of America that he is, and now the uh, Speaker of the Democrats and uh, in Congress, and I think he's a perfect example of Speaker of the Democrats in Congress. I think uh, what he exhibits his values and his positions about America and probably how he feels about America, as we see through his actions, uh, exemplifies the modern Democrat Party at that level, the progressive wing. Not all the Democrats you know. Some good ones out there. It's just they've just been hijacked. They're sort of like passengers in the back of the plane after the front of the plane has been taken over so they can go to Cuba. Uh, there's not much they can do about it, and it's best just to nod and go along with it. So... But for the most part, I think he's a good representative of that. And he was talking about how uh, RFK Jr. made a clown out of himself and all this kind of stuff. Look, RFK Jr. is a wacky dude. Now, Tucker likes him because he grew up around him. So I think they're friends. 
But RFK Jr. has some strange ideas. And we always have to get over this idea that we always have when somebody comes out that we thought was going to be liberal and they take some positions that we like, then we think they're great. Kanye West, for instance, you know, I mean, it's a perfect example. Uh, and RFK Jr. has a lot of ideas that don't ring really well with uh, conservatives out there, if you dig into it. Right now, what he's campaigning on and talking about are things that we would like to see examined more, and the left wants to either forget or pretend like it's all made up by RFK. To see a Kennedy, you know, laid into like this is pretty interesting. I actually saw another uh, shot in the Oval Office with uh, old Joe Joe at the office desk, you know, he works there all the time. You know, sometimes he's been known to work at that desk for seven or eight minutes, depending how long then they're taking his picture before he toddles off to somebody else. Uh, my house cat uh, has a much more strenuous schedule than he does. And if you look behind him, he has a bust of RFK, you know, RFK Jr.'s father, obviously. I, it's just kind of, uh, in the meantime, the sun is just being ripped by Democrats down there. What I, what I think will come out of this hearing, not a whole lot. I mean, we'll get a lot of information that down the road I think will be useful to know. But will any significant change get made? No, because there's administrative agencies. And the administrative agencies are run by the executive branch. That's how the Constitution sets it up. And the Congress can only control. They can do a few things, obviously, by the way they write, write, write laws and put some, you know, a little guardrails on that. And I think they can address uh, the FISA stuff that we see where they're getting wiretaps and all these kinds of things in what are essentially secret courts. And the courts were set up so that essentially you could you could do it, go after terrorists. And this is another thing that came out of 9-11 that is just another bad idea that we had. FISA courts out there, the, uh, home, the way we took Homeland Security and put all these different agencies in it, not a good idea. Uh, it's better to have a few of these agencies apart from each other it creates a little bit of a turf battle, and it's not quite as efficient, but it doesn't give you that monolithic state kind of thing. Uh, when you put all of the apparatus, all the federal apparatus, really, uh, f- of enforcement under Homeland Security. Now, the FBI works under Department of Justice, but, you know, that's <laughs> the, they're still hand-in-glove with Homeland Security. So... I don't like creating these enormous federal monoliths. I think that it's dangerous to uh, the republic, and I think that it creates a sense of power amongst people that already have a lot of power. You know, it elevates that. I don't think it's a great idea. But if you get a chance and you're watching something and you're around a minute or two of it, don't turn it off. It's, it's worth seeing. And if you can just think a minute about that, who they're talking to and how they're talking to him. You know, I think the last poll I saw on Friday was uh, he was at 20% in the polling. And, you know, it's and their polling is probably a little more accurate since it doesn't have Trump in it. And they, so, you know, which throws everybody's polling off. But uh, 20%, when you got an incumbent president for some outlier like RFK Jr., that's not good for the Democrats. It's certainly not good for Biden. He's lucky that RFK is not running as a third party. Now, Cornell West, that crazy professor, oh, from, is it Columbia? i got to think about it. I won't even go into Cornell West stuff, but he's running as the Green Party, and they're all worried about that, because you may recall that in 2020, 
they were pretty successful at keeping third-party candidates off their side of the ledger. Yeah, they they managed to move those guys out. They learned their lesson with Hillary in 2016. Because if you go through uh, Hillary in 2016 and you look at the uh, Green Party candidate, what was her, Dr. That's uh, a female, I can't remember. But she scraped off some votes in a couple of battleground states. And they had a couple other things out there. And it, if those votes all would have went back to Hillary, they think they would. I'm not sure they would have. It might have changed the election. So they worked hard until the next presidential election to make sure that they had everybody sort of, you know, behind the fence so that they didn't have to worry about that. Not having that kind of luck now, they're going to have, I think they're going to have some more challengers. I, I just really do. I, Nat Newsom is out there just chomping at the bit. And, uh, you know, I, I think that he is something that somebody at the party would like. He's got all the things, except intelligence, that Biden doesn't, you know. He can speak, you know, in sort of sentences that they don't, not much meaning to them. Uh, he's great at misdirection. He's about as, about as deep as a birdbath. But, uh, he can, you know, he looks decent. He can sound decent. And, uh, he can answer questions. This is where the, presidency has come to yes that's right it's just those are the qualifications now i think i'd rather have him rather have him as we've talked about here before the problem of course is how do they get around kamala you know i mean if if for some reason joe wanders out the back door uh you know trying to find uh general eisenhower in the backyard and uh they can't run him anymore uh, kamala is you know the natural choice except for people that know her and see her and are familiar with her, and she's not their choice at all. But how do you get around that? She is the vice president. So that would be very interesting tap dancing to see how they would slide her aside. I told you before that one idea they'd had <laughs> that I'd heard out of Washington was that if there was a Supreme Court nomination that would come up, they would try and slide Kamala into that. Think about that. <laughs> It's it's the it's the law it's the long slide down of intellect in that court from the Democrats, uh, but it does look like he's going to resign, and I, I just don't know what people would think about it. Uh, it's an interesting idea. We also heard the same thing with Hillary. Remember uh, that that you know she might become a Supreme Court justice or something, but apparently she's not interested in it, or they haven't had an opportunity. And the opportunity they had, they obviously had a, you know, their pick was already done, the Katanji Brown Jackson. And, uh, so she was out, out of the running, even if they would have wanted it to. But yeah, take a look at that stuff. It's, it's endemic, uh, across the country now with the way they're behaving. And look what's happening at school boards. Uh, man, there's some wild stuff in school boards. I hope Merrick Garland gets his agents in there and gets that under control, boy. When did when did that stuff, by the way, ever become something for the FBI? Calling, you know, raucous school board meetings uh, possible terrorism. You see how easy it is to slide into that. You get a, a just a very wide definition. Remember, we talked about if you, if you let someone else make the definition, they can pretty much run the deal. And so you get a wide enough definition about terrorism to where you can pretty much have any threatening behavior or any you know shouting even that could be interpreted as threatening behavior to an official body, and all of a sudden it could be terrorism, and it becomes a federal problem. And uh, they apparently have so many resources that they can spend time doing that. In the meantime, crime is completely 
out of control in the big cities. I mean, if you watch the, the news at night, uh, you can watch Fox or whatever you want to watch, unless you want to watch the ABC stations, you know, the alphabet ones, you'll just see stuff that just shocks you. And if you read the papers, particularly if you read the New York Post or uh, some of these others that try and give an actual look at what's going on, you wonder if it can come back. It can come back. Trust me, it can come back. But it's going to take somebody with a lot more grit than uh, than what they have now. But I want to talk about something else, too, because I, I want to talk about the Ukraine a little bit here. Because, of course, we saw that NATO conference where Zelensky was just all wound up in his little bad self because he thought they were just going to, like, make him part of NATO right there, I guess. And they didn't, and even the United States was a little leery about it. And it's certainly not the right time, according to us, and I don't think there is a right time for Ukraine. Remember, there's a section in the NATO agreements that an attack on one NATO nation is the same as an attack on all the nation. NATO nations, which means that this is why Zelensky wants it, because at that point, then he can claim that he should be getting all sorts of weapons and troops to help him because he's NATO member. And it's it's kind of spooky enough to get Sweden and Finland in there, because once again, you're talking about people that are right on the border. Now, right now, Soviet Union, if it existed like it used to, was very interested in Finland, especially now Russian Federation, probably not as interested right now. They seem a little, little busy other places, but it could come back again. I mean, it's uh, these things don't go away. These are rivalries and disputes over territory that are older than our country in some of these areas. And so they come back again. And so making somebody a trip point out there for a possible third world war that's already sort of in a trip point, you got to really think about that. Well, and, of course, this week you guys heard about all these records from uh, Burisma. Remember Burisma, the uh, the gas pipeline group in Ukraine that uh, needed Hunter Biden because of his vast experience in that and then paying all this money to him. And, of course, now they have a informant that was recording a conversation with one of their executives that talks about giving money to Hunter and giving money, you know, to the big guy, essentially, and stuff. I read an account of it. On ABC, oops, excuse me, bumping into stuff. On ABC, and I think I couldn't tell you how many times the word "unverified" appeared in the ABC story. Unverified informant, unverified information, unverified. Well, we should hire you because, as far as I can tell, you know, ABC, NBC, and CBS have, uh, and sort of the New York Times, are the kings of unverified information. So, if we wanted to find out if that's what it was, uh, I guess you're the people to identify it because you're kind of experts in it. But what's funny about it was they said he was, had to get the money to uh, Hunter to you know for protection essentially, and that Hunter was uh, was dumber than his dog, <laughs> and yet he's the smartest man Joe knows, which may be true. Uh, so <laughs> that was kind of funny all by itself. But you know, one of the things that I wanted to bring up because we have a little history in here because I think it's very illuminating about what's happening to Ukraine is. This has become a proxy war that is being fought with a lot of now cutting-edge weapons from both sides, certainly our stuff, our technological stuff. And the Germans, to some extent, and certainly the French and the British have been sending more and more sophisticated stuff over there. They may want to think a little bit about uh, the Spanish Civil War. And a lot of you guys know about it, but it's it just sort of something that happened. You know a whole lot about it. And, and the Spanish Civil War ran from 36 to 39. 
And it was a testing ground for World War II's weaponry and tactics uh, because the Axis powers, or the future Axis powers, um, were heavily involved in that, and to some extent so were, were the future allies. You know, And the nationalists, by the way, were led by, of course, Generalissimo Francisco Franco, and they were seeking to overthrow Spain's Republican government, they would call that, which wasn't a great government either. And they received all the support from uh, Italy, uh, from Benito Mussolini, uh, from uh, the, from Nazi Germany at the time. And they thought that the Spanish Civil War, of course, because uh, Francisco Franco was vaguely uh, fascist, um, not quite as to the extent these guys were. And But they saw an opportunity to combat the uh, spread of communism. Because really what they're saying is the nationalists on one side were leaning more towards fascism and the government in place was leaning a little more towards communism. And so they thought that was okay. But what they were really interested in would test their military capabilities and tactics without actually being in a full-scale war. And so the German Luftwaffe uh, used this war to perfect their air warfare techniques. Uh, and bombing, for instance, and some of their bomb sites and stuff like that. And they did it. They bombed a Basque town up there. Uh, Gornica, I think is what it is. And the destructive power air bombardment hadn't really been seen before with all of these new uh, weapons and bombers. And this was really an opportunity for them to see how terrifically bad that was. Italy set a number of troops and tanks and other military hardware. And it sort of demonstrated the ways for them to fine-tune their military operations, which they would use in their tactics in World War II. Obviously, they weren't used quite as well in the Italians, but uh, the Germans took full advantage of that, plus sending firearms and all these things that they were testing. See, everything worked. And the Republican side was not getting as much, but they were still getting pretty significant support uh, from the Soviet Union, and there was support coming in from uh, people in the Western democracies like Britain and France. While they were officially neutral, they did supply a number of things. And there were thousands of volunteers. You guys may have read about this. Uh, the Lincoln Brigade, I think, is one of them that came from the United States. And from uh, all these Western countries uh, flocked to Spain to join the international brigades in support of the Republicans. And this sort of provided the Allied powers insights into those tactics. So they got a little bit out of it, too. But remember, whenever you exhibit all of your really most powerful stuff, new stuff, cutting-edge stuff. You're putting it out there for other people to see, not only to to understand it, but to try tactics against it, things that are really you're not able to do in testing very well. You're not really willing to put a pilot in an aircraft that's a new aircraft and fly it up to try and shoot down somebody's aircraft from the enemy and in return maybe get shot down yourself. I mean, that's just... That's incredibly helpful testing, not something you engage to in yourself. So this situation allowed them to see um, how their armaments would operate and also see what tactics works against each other. And in the end, I believe it was probably very helpful to the military leaders, but not a good idea, really, especially for the West. Uh, The Germans really perfected their bombing techniques in Spain, which was something they were really developing uh, early on with the Luftwaffe. And as we know, the Luftwaffe was a really a terrifically difficult uh, portion of their armed forces to fight. It took a long time to get air superiority there. 
And, of course, we all know what happened in Britain. But, you know, the Luftwaffe was important to the ground troops because not only did you have the air power, but you had the tanks, which we've talked about before. The tanks are they're cavalry, right, armored cavalry. And they have to move. You know, you have to have momentum in an uh, armored situation, just like you do in regular cavalry. Uh, they're, they're only effective when they're on the move. And if they're on the move and they don't have momentum, they become very susceptible to all sorts of attacks. One of the ways you keep them moving is air power. In the past, you kept things moving by skirmishers and a lot of infantry out there to try and keep people from attacking the flanks and so forth. So you still have that with armor. But if you can control the skies and essentially get a little ahead of your armored columns and blow everything up, uh, you can keep the armored column moving fast. And the faster it moves, the more surprise you have on your side and the more devastating it can be. So they learned a lot about that. Now, Spain, you know, is a pretty mountainous country in certain parts. So they also had some experience there and in fighting places that were going to be probably uh, important to them as they went into Central Europe and places like that later on. Uh, hard lessons to learn in those mountains. But the bombing campaigns and learning tactics to really facilitate the bombing and especially targets like cities, you know, I mean, let's face it, there's a lot of bombing on both sides uh, that was hitting civilians. But also able to get pilots having uh, expertise in flying, you know, through anti-aircraft fire and also testing out bomb sites and getting bombardiers uh, some experience so that they were more accurate with their bombing. So that was what was happening. And I'm worried that a lot of that's happening in the uh, theater in Ukraine. And it's and I, I'm worried about the Russians learning too much about us, but I'm actually lur- worried a lot more about the Chinese. Don't think the Chinese aren't being supplied with all this information about our weapons and tactics and what tactics work best against them. And they are sending it off to the Eastern Command as fast as they can because Eastern Command is the where the Chinese army is right across from Taiwan. And don't think those aren't going to be incorporated into their tactics as they make their move on Taiwan, which could be, I don't know, I think it's in the next year, possibly. It's very difficult to say. We, you know, there's a we have kind of a very obscured view of what they're going to do. But now that the main party of Congress is over and Xi Jinping is, uh, looks like he gets to be a ruler for life, uh, he may be in a better position to do something like that. So we may be looking at that. I'm just worried that they have a lot of information on our weapons and tactics when we're stretched really thin. And as even our president has said, we're low on ammo. None of that's good. It's even worse. Let your enemies know that. So... We need to be very careful about what we're supplying and what we're exhibiting. And it may be more important to us to keep our best punch hidden, not let the Ukrainians use it. We'll be right back. Well, actually, next week.